0: We're in the midst of a series where we're asking a question, why? If God is so good, then why evil? Why sickness? Why war? Why sexual immorality? And this morning, why poverty? Travel in a village of Malawi. You might see a woman sitting on the front stoop of her hut. Next to her, there will be a small plot of land with... Crops that are dried and shriveled. If you look around the village where she is, uh, you'll see a a number of homes. The thing you won't see, if you look around, you won't see many people between the ages of like 20 and 45. And that might seem odd. You'll wonder where they are. And if you inquire, you'd learn that on this particular day in the city, that the AIDS epidemic, which is sweeping through these villages in sub-Saharan Africa, have claimed the lives, and the five able-bodied men and women between the ages of 20 and 45 have gone to that funeral. You direct your attention back to the woman sitting on the stoop in front of the hut, the thing that will occur to you as well, gosh, this woman has a lot of kids, and she looks old. Fifteen kids around her, one woman in this village in Malawi. If you inquired, she'd tell you that her children died of AIDS, and now, after a life of toil, she has the responsibility to care for these orphans, and there are 15 of them. You asked what she did yesterday. She'd talk about a walk that she had to take a four-year-old who came down with an infection and a fever, had to go to get some medicine. So she would tell you that she had to take her, put her on her back, and walk the 6.2 miles get there and find there's no medicine available, and then she had to come back. She was told and the following day. She did so and was able to receive the medicine that she needed. If we took a trip then out of the village, we'd leave a number of different things like this. We'd hear the same kinds of stories. Go to the, the largest hospital in Malawi, and um, the second largest city, Queen Anne's Hospital. And there's some good news here. There's an Indian country, an Indian business called CIPLA, which is providing and has instituted a program of providing low-cost anti-AIDS medications to developing countries. Uh, The country, the government of Malawi, is too impoverished to be able to afford a dollar a day for those who need the medicine. So... The only ones that are going to be able to be treated are those with a dollar a day. And there are about 900,000 infected by AIDS in in the country of Malawi. And there are 400 in this wing that are being treated. About 400 people a day come in, get the medicine. It works really well because there's not a lot of medicine used so that these medications, they have the impact they're designed to have. Um, Right across the hall, there's a doctor that administers this side of the hall in Queen Anne's Hospital. Right across the hall, there is another room with 150 beds. And that is a place where the individuals don't have enough money for the dollar a day to get the AIDS medication. And there are 150 beds. There are 450 people. And in a bed, they'll one will be head to toe, the other toe to head. And then there's another one. There will be moans filling this room. And um, that is part of the life of what it's like to live in sub-Saharan Africa. Over 7 million people around the world die each year because they're too poor to stay alive. Every morning, our newspapers could report more than 20,000 people perished yesterday of extreme poverty. If you're like me, talking about stuff like this is about as pleasurable as getting a root canal, going to a dentist. You know, it's like stuff, gosh. it's um, And yet, if we sit at Jesus' feet, There's over 2,100 references to caring for the poor in the Bible. 2,100 references to taking care of the poor. I feel so good about uh, just the the small thing we're doing to try to help out in terms of Katrina relief. Uh, A writer has written, though, that in the poorest countries, every day is deadly as a hurricane. Malaria kills two African children a minute. Around the clock, in that minute, a woman dies from complications during pregnancy. Nine people get infected with AIDS, and three people die of TB. In the past, there have been a lot of aid workers, and agencies, national governments, international organizations have struggled for years to get ahead of the problem, but were unable to. There was no one in charge, no consensus about what to do first. And what you ended up having was a lot of hand-wringing and promises, and it's like what what I feel like when I face this stuff. Good grief, this is monumental. What in the world can you do? And that's the kind of thing that has occurred. There was no one solution to fit all the countries. Over the last 10 to 20 years, a couple of very interesting things have happened. Uh, there was an individual named Jeffrey Sachs wrote a book, The End of Poverty. And he's been an international consultant, world-renowned, and what he's really good at He's good at going into governments that are really reeling from all kinds of things. They're in crisis, and he's really good at going in, helping them to understand why what's happening is happening, and also to prescribe, and here's what you might do. And he's not just one of these guys that's smart. He knows what he's talking about, but he has the ability to make it clear and to communicate it and not just to communicate what the problem is, to say, and here's what you can do. Boink, 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 boink. He wrote a book, The End of Poverty. I think he's been a very, he's gone from place to place. He got the ear of a couple people, unlikely people, and they ended up becoming Times Persons of the Year, Bono of the group U2. I think was in touch with Jeffrey Sachs and with some others, and he became an international advocate for global relief and global health concerns. And Bill and Melinda Gates, who also shared that as well. They were the three time persons of the year, and they bring an interesting collection of things to bear. I don't know what you think about Bill and Melinda Gates. Um, I think it's their contribution to this area is significant and profound. Granted, they live in a hundred and ten million dollar house. however, their contribution is global and is serious they They attack it with the same strategy results that they attack conquering the inter uh, software market. Bono brings a sense of you know he's not the most thrilling person, Bill Gates, I guess i've never met him, haven't heard much from him bono is is Well, luckily, one of the largest rock personalities in the world, known all over the world. Very charismatic, but um, I guess he arranged an opportunity to talk to Bill Gates. Bill Gates said, "That's the last thing I need to talk to a rock star. But then Bono came in and started talking about all these things, and it was soon they became a partnership. And there's a lot that's happening under the auspices of the Gates Foundation, which has established an endowment of $29 billion dollars to deal with global health concerns. Bono has formed a group, DATA, Debt, AIDS, Trade for Africa. And it's, in fact, it's an acronym that has two things, Debt, AIDS, and Trade for Africa. And it's also, as relates to being a representative of the United States, democracy, accountability transparency for Africa, and so they're trying to put themselves in the middle to fund efforts and make sure they, they hit the mark. Jeffrey Sachs in his book uh, has said, relatively, if you're going to try to break it down, if we, have, if we have this, let's break the place down, let's break it down into a couple different chunks. Actually, this might work kind of good. About one-sixth of the population of the world would be classified as extreme poverty. And what that means, they live as the Malawians do. They're too ill, hungry, or destitute to get a rung on the economic ladder. They're the poorest of the poor. Not all of them are dying today, but they're fighting for survival each day. And that's what it means to live in extreme poverty. It means fighting for survival today. Um, If they are victims of a serious drought or a flood or an episode of serious illness, a collapse in a world market, the result is likely to be extreme suffering and perhaps even death. So let's say about one-sixth of the world's population, and then there's another 1.5 billion people that live among mere subsistence. They're kind of like the people in Bangladesh, which 20 years back was in awful shape, but through some of the initiatives, they're starting to get their feet back under them, in a sense. Uh, death is not at their door. Chronic fa- financial hardship, a lack of safe drinking water, functioning latrines are a part of their daily lives. But they're not as bad as the one-sixth of the extreme poor. They are the low-income poor. Then there's the middle-income poor. And this is about 2.5 billion people. A company like India, which there's some things really starting to happen in India. These are individuals who aren't middle class by the standards of rich countries, but they are able to secure some comfort in their housing, even indoor plumbing. They can purchase a scooter, someday maybe even an automobile. They have adequate clothing and their children go to school. There's about one billion people. Six of the world population lives in the United States, Western Europe, some places in Asia. And, the, and we understand life in that kind of nation because that's the nation we live in. Billion people in extreme poverty. And I guess the question, why? Why? There's a couple things. In terms of factors, here's what we'll do. We'll look at some factors We'll hear what Jesus has to say about this, and we'll try to make some application. Again, this is not the most enjoyable stuff. I'm really heavy dealing with this. I don't like dealing with it. It's very troubling to think about, but important to think about. The Bible says a lot about it. Talk about some horizontal factors. This I found interesting. I'm not going to go into a long thing. I found it interesting. Again, I'm going to recommend this book. If you want... Global Poverty, it was written in 2005. Jeffrey Sachs, The End of Poverty, does a really good job of breaking all this down. If you're interested, you want to take it. if that's a library book, don't take it. <laughs> but if you want a broader understanding, want to do some research, great book. Um, I, haven't, I haven't got all the way through it yet. Uh, there's a couple things... When poverty is very extreme, the poor don't have the ability by themselves to get out of the mess. You know, we like to think that, well, if somebody's poor, they choose to be poor. They just don't have the get up and go. They don't have the determination. They just don't stick with it. And that is simplistic, just not true. In extreme poverty, poverty is a trap. Um, Physical geography has a lot to do. See, we live in a country where there's some real benefits here. That's why we like it. Do you know what Megua Megua in Chinese, beautiful country. Beautiful country. And that's what the Chinese word for North America is, the beautiful country. We have a great the coastlines we have, navigable rivers. We have a lot of resources a good climate to grow crops. There's a number of things about our geography that make it a great place to live and a place from which to do a lot of exporting, a lot of importing. We can send stuff pretty cheaply from one part of America to another because there's a lot of waterways we have. We have a great country to live in. Not all countries are as fortunate. Some are landlocked, situated in high mountain ranges where even if you develop something that's worth marketing, It costs so much to get it to market that you really can't do so. And so there's a number of obstacles that countries deal with. They don't have navigable rivers, long coastlines, good natural harbors. In sub-Saharan Africa, um, there are parts of it that are very dry and desolate, other parts that are very rainy and tropical, and those are perfect for disease. Malaria and, and different diseases that run rampant because of the geography of a place. It's not just physical geography that contributes to extreme poverty. There is the fiscal trap as well. Some governments just don't have the resources to pay for the kind of thing that economic growth depends on. Back about a generation decided that there were going to be a number of more than a generation. Highways that are going to bisect the nation. Good internal road systems. So we can go from here to Kansas City and I went to Boston over Christmas time, good roads, all the way out and back. Uh, Tremendous benefit in terms of doing commerce from one place to another, right? And not all places enjoy the same level of good roads. When I was in Belize, Central America in 1988, 1990, Uh, Belmopan, the capital, Uh, we took a ride from Belmopan, this airport that we came into, and to... um, and the road was just like one lane in some places. And, you know, the way they drive, there's, there's like rainforests on the side and, and you're going across a bridge. One, and this is between the capital and a pretty major city. And so it's, it's uh, lack of roads makes it difficult to do business from one part of a place to another. Uh, If the people don't have a lot of money, you can't tax them. If you can't tax them, you can't do a lot of initiatives. Some governments are so much in debt that the money that they do get has to be given to tax relief. I could go on and on. There are a number of... And all I want to point out is that it's not just laziness. Not just laziness. That woman in Malawi, she's going to have a very difficult time, as is that village. It might be one thing if... They could dig wells and improve their irrigation. But the young people who could do so were dying of AIDS. And if she could put her children in a place where they could be educated, but she really can't do that. She hardly has enough to feed them. And if they could only raise help, but there's not, so you, do you see the problem? It's like a whirlpool. And that's why there's been efforts to try to spearhead relief, and it's happening on a global basis. There are some vertical factors. Look look in the the worship sheet. The worship, although there's a sheet with some verses written on it. Um, The prophet, Old Testament prophets, Amos, had this to say. Hear this you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat, skimping the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. When Israel was traveling around in the wilderness, pretty much people were, by and large, kind, kind of the same. You know, there were some people that had more stuff like Abraham, but nobody had a bunch of stuff. When they went to a monarchy where there were kings, what ended up happening is that there were the kings and those in power, they were the townspeople, and they ended up using money as currency. They didn't barter anymore, so it wasn't, I'll give you the crops and you give me that and we all give each other something. They started to use money. And when they started to use money, what ended up happening is the farmers had to borrow money from the townspeople. That makes sense, right? And if things went bad that year, then the farmers wouldn't be able to pay off their debts so they'd have to remain in debt. And here's what was happening in Israel that God really was offended by. These people would be really enslaved to the people in the towns and the people would keep them that way. God, in, when he was giving the people the rules for living in the, from Mount Sinai, when he did that, he said, don't oppress a poor person. In fact, he said, every seven years, if somebody is enslaved to you, you have to clear their debt and let them go. And on that year, that seventh year, don't farm the land. Let the crop come up and the poor are to have it. Again, do not oppress the poor because God says, I take notice of that kind of stuff. And that's what the prophets were really irritated by. Those who were in a position to make money were doing so but they were disregarding the needs of the poor, and they felt that they were in a privileged position, but what God communicated to them through the prophets is, this is a big deal to me. And in fact, when the people went into captivity, one of the things that God pointed out, look what you're doing to the poor. And that was one of the ways that they showed that they were not doing what he would have them to do. There are a number of different factors that contribute to poverty. There are some horizontal factors that we, physical and money-wise, there are some vertical factors. What's the response of God? And we'll look at three different responses to the poor, to the rich, and to the church. The response of God to the poor. The single, in fact, if you come up with anything, the single most significant thing that Jesus said when dealing with the poor we it's striking that when Jesus came he was born into a poor family now God can place his son in any kind of family he chooses Joseph and Mary didn't have a lot of money and when they came to do the sacrifice they had to do the least expensive one Jesus when he died he died with a tunic And when Jesus was speaking, directing his remarks to poor people, he would have used, could have used the word we, us. In fact, with rich people, he seemed to use the word you and because he was poor himself. Look what the verse says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. I think he became poor for a couple of reasons. Number one, to show his compassion for the poor. Again, if we come up with anything today, God is very compassionate about the plight of the poor. I think that's why when he sends his son, his son becomes poor so that his outreach to poor people... I think that Bill Gates and Melinda Gates do pretty significant things. However, when they come into a village... I think the villagers really understand they're talking to somebody not like them. Had Jesus Christ walked into a village in Malawi, they would have understood that he was one of them. Maybe not as destitute, but poor. And from the perspective of poverty, Jesus reached out to those who he was concerned about, the poor. And so to the poor, what God says is you matter. In fact, when I come to this earth, I'm going to join your ranks. There's another reason why Jesus' is in his poverty, I think, because when you're in that state, you don't have as much insulation from which to depend for security. You have to rely on God. And I think that's another reason why then Jesus would put himself in a position where he'd have to really rely on the Father. Uh, look what Jesus said, Luke 4:18, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And the poor were a specific focus of Jesus' ministry. So that's what Jesus says to the poor, that he cares, he's concerned. How about to the rich? The response of God to the rich. And here's what I... I really don't know what to do with this. You know, when I get up here, I don't have a bunch of answers. Um, By... All depends what are we rich compared to Bill Gates? Are we rich compared to five sixths of the world? Yeah, we are. And you know what that kind of disturbs me. And in that sense, when Jesus talks to rich people, that are us. We don't not all of us get to go to a real good restaurant today, but we get to go to a restaurant. If we became sick We might not be able to get the best doctors in the country, but we can get good ones. We can get medicine. We have a bed. We have safe drinking water. We have sewage. We have all those things. We are the rich in this world. And does everything Jesus say? I don't know how to apply it all, but let's look what he said Um, in Luke. He said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Woe to you who are rich. You've already received your comfort. For those who were in, those, in that culture, there weren't many rich people in that culture. There were a few landowners, and then the bulk of the people were uh, poor, farmers, agrarian. And what Jesus basically said to them, this is as good as it's going to get. This is as good as it's going to get. And to poor who put their faith in him, what he said, this is as bad as it's going to get. So it might be tough now. Yours is coming. And to the rich, he said, this is as good as it's going to get. Uh, however, he did speak to the church. And let's, let's stop here. Oh, let's not stop here. <laughs> let's stop to hear what Jesus would say to people who, by world standards, have resources and wealth. Um, I think, number one, he says, invest eternally. Invest eternally. Look at this verse. Luke 16 says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your heart. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. So you cannot serve both God and money. What Jesus said about money is that money is very seductive. Money has the power to attract people to devote themselves to it. And when you think of it, it's interesting, isn't it? Both God and money make the same promises. Come into, do what I say. Serve me, and you'll be safe, and you'll be protected. When we think about our future, one of the reasons why we want to put money aside is to be able to protect ourselves in the case of one, two, three, four, five, and if we have that money, then we'll be insulated, we'll be protected. And there is a sense to which money will lure us to be able to put our confidence in its ability to protect. And what the Bible says when it talks about money, cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone for they will sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. By converse, God says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And when the Bible talks about not securing ourselves by how much money we get, the reason it says so is because money cannot deliver on what it promises. Money makes God-like claims. Get me and I will protect you. Get me, and I will please you. Get me, and I will provide for you. And in a country like ours, where we have the resources to not give yourselves, to give ourselves to being secured by money, we have to swim against the tide. i don 't know how many things I see that talk about insurance, retirement, you can't go from here to there without facing something about, do you have enough stocked away? The inference is what? Because if you don't have it stocked away, what's going to happen? You'll be left without protection. You'll be left without provision. You'll be left without pleasure. Why? Because you need to have money to be protected, provided and pleased. Am I saying don't do retirement? No, I'm not saying don't do retirement. I am saying that those same claims, what Jesus would say, why do you worry about what you'll eat and drink and what you're going to put on? Don't the pagans worry about these things? Your Father in heaven knows that you need them. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. If you don't have a good nest egg, are you going to be in, a, in, in bad straits? I don't know. It all depends if you have Jesus or not. If you have Jesus, you're not going to be in a bad spot. Why? Because he knows you need stuff to eat. He knows we need stuff to drink. He knows we need places to live and clothes to put on. And if you don't have a huge nest egg, guess what? You're protected. You know why? Because that's stuff that God does. And what God would say, use resources, but don't put your security in them. And don't put your hope in them. That's really hard for a culture like ours to follow. Being in China, China is becoming a very affluent nation, especially the cities. The rural places are a whole different shot. But it's difficult. We have to swim against the tide. It said in the, in the next verse, he says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What the Bible indicates is this. You have treasure in one or two places, and that treasure is what secures our life. If you understand that you're eternally secured, that really after this life stops you'll be ushered into another existence that will be eternal. And if to the degree you believe, we believe that, then we can afford to be generous with the stuff that we have now. Why? Because this isn't the real treasure. That is. Now, if I believe I'm going there, then this stuff becomes, yeah, you know, i got to provide, but this is not what I base my life on. If I'm insecure about this, if I don't know if I'm going to be there, I don't know that I matter to God, I don't know that He cares about me, if I don't know that, can I be generous with what I have now? What the Bible would indicate, no. That's why it says, He has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Why would He say that to you? Two reasons. Because if you understand that God's offer of eternal life is not something that I don't know. He came to die for you. And to the degree you begin to believe that, it changes your values. You end up saying, well, you know what? This life might not be all there is. It might, it might not be the, the greatest life. But you know what? Check with me 80 years from now. I'm going to be great 80 years from now. 20 years, I might not. (laughs) He'd been pleased to give you the kingdom. And what he's talking about is you. God's kingdom is eternal. You know what's going to happen to this world? There'll be a time where this world's going to cease to exist. That's really hard for me to understand. But that's what he says. God says that as he brought the world into being, there will be a time where everything that exists now, boom, disappears. And the only thing that's left in a good spot are those who thought enough of their eternal destiny to try to figure out, how do I live a life that matters to God? And the fact that you're here this morning tells me that this is stuff you care about. Good for you. See, I don't think you'd be here if you didn't care about this stuff. And what he tells us, that he's been pleased to give us the kingdom because when we realize that it's ours, more and more it gives us the ability to be a little bit more generous and free with what we have because that is what he asks us to do. It's not impossible to be rich in a Christian. In fact, look what it says in the last verse, Timothy, under this point. It says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And what he's talking about here is believers. And here's what he says. And this applies to us. He applies to people with money. You might look to the person next to you, but if we are looking globally... We are one-sixth that have money, and this is what we're told. Command those who are rich in this present world, wait a minute, yeah, again, compared to the world we are, not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Number one, what it will say this. Don't look to money as being that which provides you with safety and security, because it doesn't provide that. It's uncertain. It can come and go. The market could collapse, and then we'd be in a whole different spot. And so what it will indicate, don't wait for that to happen. If there's a reversal in the future, so be it. Right now, those who would want to walk with God, don't put your hope in that. Start now. To And again, you're, part of it is what you're doing here. Trying to figure out what does it mean to have a relationship with God? How can I be sure that I'm connected with God? Because as that sureness increases, it will give you the ability not to put your hope in wealth. If you don't know that God is somebody that you can put your hope in, it's going to be difficult for you to do that. So you keep coming back. We'll continue to try to convince you. We'll convince ourselves of that. So the Bible would have us to do. It says, which is so uncertain, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Apparently that's what, that's what the deal is. If you have resources, fine, have resources. But be generous and willing to share. And that way the Bible says you invest eternally. Investing in meeting the needs of the poor. And I don't know what that means for us. I don't know what that means for us. I really would like somehow to be able to be involved. And maybe you know something about this. You can let me know. I'm going to read this book and read some other things. Is there a way that we can get involved in in this whole movement to deal with extreme poverty in sub-Saharan Africa? I'd be interested in that. I think that's something that, that God would have us to do. I don't know what that would look like right now, but as we figure it out, we'll let you know. And if you have some ideas of how to do that, I'd really like to hear about them. It asks us to invest eternally, understanding that we are eternal beings and we'll be around then. So in light of that, let's deal with the things that that we can deal with now, poverty being one of them. The second thing he calls live nobly. Live nobly. Look what it says in Isaiah. This is a time. It's the kind of time that I described when there were the townspeople with money and the farmers without it. And the people were living to try to get all they could. Uh, It's kind of like, I think I've told you before, some people live by the maxim and these townspeople were. Some people get what they can, can what they get, sit in their can. (laughs) That's kind of what it looked like at that time. That's what he says. The scoundrel's methods are wicked. He makes up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies, even when the plea of the needy is just. But the noble man makes noble plans, and by noble deeds he stands. Let me tell you what noble means. Willing, uncoerced, concerned for the poor. For it to be noble, it's got to be willing. It's got to be unconstrained. It can't be somebody jumping up and down, saying, you better or God's going to get you. That's not noble. What noble is, is when concern for the poor, concern for the oppressed, doesn't rise from some kind of threatening you better, but it's something that wells up from within. It's a word that describes what happened once when God tells the Israelites, you build this tabernacle and I'll show up in it. And then they say, anybody want to give to this? We're going to build a house that God's going to show up in. And they emptied their pockets. What that was called, they were being noble. They, weren't, they didn't have to be threatened or coerced. Why? Right? They were willing because God said, I'm gonna, I'll bless you, I'll show up. That's what noble is. And here's what it says. The noble man makes noble plans, and by noble deeds he stands. And that's what the Bible would have us to do, live nobly. What does it mean to live nobly? It means to live a life in which you care about things that matter that you live your life in such a way as to make a mark. You have an impact. It's not just about me. It's to be concerned about things that are large things, and concern for the poor is that. But not something that you have to be browbeaten. If it doesn't come from a willing heart, it doesn't count as noble. How do you become noble? I'm going to end with this. There are two offerings, two kinds of offerings when God was teaching the Israelites how to walk with Him, there was a sin offering. And then there was what was called the free will offering, or a noble offering. A sin offering and a noble offering. And the sin offering was what you did to get your sin problem taken care of. You know, sin gets in the way of us in God. So if you wanted to be sure of having eternal connection with God, then you'd need to do the sin offering and an animal would need to die. Some kind of offering would need to be sacrificed so that your sins get atoned for by that animal. Then what happened after you did the sin offering, when that was all done, finished, my sins are covered, then you would do a noble offering. And what a noble offering was, was, you know what? Now I know that my sins are covered. That I am connected with God. In light of being connected with God, gosh, what can I do? What can I give? I'm connected with the God of the universe and I kind of want to give something. And that's where the noble offering came in. It was uncoerced, uncoerced, constrain concern for somebody else. Why? Because God and I are connected. My sins are covered. I am eternally connected with God. Who can I help? I want to live nobly. I don't want to live for me. I want to do stuff that matters, that counts. That's what a noble offering was. And you know what? Back here, for the sin offering, the sin offering had to be perfect. You couldn't just take any kind of offering. It needed to be a perfect offering. That's why, when it comes to covering our sins, Jesus Christ had to be perfect. Why? Because only a perfect offering can cover up sin. And He was perfect. And He died for you to cover your sins. And God offers the possibility that you could know that you're in right relationship if you'll place your faith in Jesus and what He did for you. Thank God, I pray that that your death would cover my sin, that Jesus would be my sacrifice. And if you've made that step, just say, God, I want to be one of your children. If you placed your faith in Christ, what that means, your sin offering is done. What are you going to do now? Your sin offering's done. You're covered. You'll be in heaven. You know what they did back then? Now's the time for the noble offering. You know what the noble offering, it didn't need to be perfect. It could be whatever you had. It didn't need to be a perfect offering. It could be whatever you brought, but you brought it because you knew that you were in contact with God and now you wanted to give it away. That's what it means to live nobly. Are you eternally connected to God through Christ? What we'd like to do is is to increase your confidence in that. Because if you do, you'll find an increasing capacity to live nobly. Uncoerced, unrestrained concern for somebody else, knowing that you are eternally secured. Therefore, there will be an increasing want to, to serve, invest in the lives of others. Let's stand for closing prayer. You know what, I'm going to bring the worship team up. I almost forgot. Worship team, come on up. We have a final song. I'm not going to pray yet. I don't know what to do.